welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at pub quiz virtually. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Um, uh, so, uh, <laughs> it, it, um, we're recording on Easter Sunday. <laughs> And uh, tomorrow is is Dingus Day, and we're going to be posting a, a photo of us um, for Dingus Day. But uh, it's not it's not quite the same this year for Dingus Day. I'm sure the Dingus Day parade was canceled, and I'm uh, I'm sorry for all of those those Broadway area those Buffalonians who have to drink mm-hmm. inside Ugh. alone instead at 10 a.m. on a Monday. Actually, it'll probably be the exact same as usual, but <laughs> but. Uh, Last week you did an episode based on um, a request from a listener, and uh, we have also had we've had a couple of requests from people, which we are more than happy to do if we can. I mean, you know, sometimes, some topics. Sometimes it's really like how much mental um, exertion we're, we we have <laughs> to spend at that at that moment in time. Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes it's oof, that's going to be a real bummer, or. Uh, we don't have enough time to do like the history of plants, you know, like that kind of thing. Not that someone has asked for yeah. plants, but like sometimes the topics are too broad. Yeah. Like time, like there are times I've been like, we just got to do world war two. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm <laughs> a nine hour episode on world war two. How hard yeah. could that be? I mean, even, even Ken Burns hasn't really tackled. <laughs> World War Two. I mean, he did the Vietnam War, and that was still like an eleven-part right series. Yeah. So, you know, little old us, we can only do so much. Um, but I will say, this request that we got was, um, I was like, yeah, absolutely, I'm going to do this. So uh, today's episode is called "That Old Man in the Sea," Ernest Hemingway. So uh, here's the thing. Full disclosure, I have never read an Ernest Hemingway book, novel, short story, or poem. I have never had any interest. <gasps> or I was poem? In- <laughs> like even, even in the course of researching this episode, you couldn't read a poem? Uh, well, okay. I guess I read like a couple of line poems from like the websites that I saw about him. Like, you know, he said this, blah, blah, blah. Um, I've never had any interest, even though I was I was a very bad English major in college. I did not care to read the classics. <laughs> um, and in fact, didn't read a lot of my like 19th century British uh, novels. But <clears throat> that's neither here nor there. We're going to talk about Inter- Ernest Hemingway, the man. We're going to talk about his long and storied life. Uh, and um, I'm going to give summaries of each of the 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 hits his excellent hits, the novels so do yeah. you recommend that everybody start this episode with an alcoholic beverage yes i would have i would recommend uh preferably rum and um maybe a cigar uh wear like um like one of those roll neck white jumpers and grow a big white beard so <laughs> So, so go ahead and do that. At least one of those things. At least one of those things. Go ahead and do that. Get real rip drunk because that's what Ernest would have wanted. So, to begin with, 
Ernest Miller Hemingway was born on July 21st, 1899 in Oak Park, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. Shout out to Chicago. Uh, He was the second of six children. His father, Clarence Edmonds Hemingway, was a physician, and his mother, Grace Hall Hemingway, was a musician. Um, Both were well-educated and well-respected in Oak Park, and later Ernest Hemingway would say that he disliked his name, which he, quote, associated with the naive, even foolish hero of Oscar Wilde's play, The Importance of Being Earnest. More on that later. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, yeah. So whatever. Uh, Hemingway's mother frequently performed in concerts around the village, and as an adult, Hemingway professed to hate his mother. Uh, although biographer Michael S. Reynolds points out that Hemingway mirrored her energy and enthusiasm. So he was more like his mom than he would have liked to admit. Um, and there really isn't any, like, I don't know why he hated his mother so much. I don't know. He seemed to really have an issue with women, which you'll see later. But uh, most of all, the family spent summers at Windermere on Walloon Lake near Petoskey, Michigan, and Hemingway's father taught him to hunt, fish, and camp in the woods and lakes of northern Michigan as a young boy. And these early experiences in nature instilled a passion for outdoor adventure and living in remote or isolated areas. This was something that kind of carried with him the rest of his life. So like Mark Twain, Stephen Crane, Theodore Dreiser, and Sinclair Lewis, Hemingway was a journalist before he became a novelist. Um, After he left high school, he went to work for the Kansas City Star as a cub reporter. And although he stayed there for only six months, he relied on the Star's style guide as a foundation for his writing. Quote, use short sentences. Use short first paragraphs. Use vigorous English. Be positive, not negative. I get behind all that. Yeah, yeah. His writing style is, and we'll talk a little bit about it, but um, his writing style was very like short, clipped. He didn't use a lot of flowery language. It was like he liked to use uh, the word and instead of commas. So a lot of his um, descriptive sentences have and, and, and. So it's a very like truncated um, and it's it's later read as kind of like masculine, this like mm. strong declarative sentences. And so that style of writing is specifically Hemingway-ish. And um, it's been copied and parodied ever since, you know, he started writing um but that's kind of like you can id a hemingway sentence no problem because he had a very distinctive way of writing so in december of 1917 hemingway responded to a red cross recruitment effort and signed on to be an ambulance driver in italy after having failed to enlist in the army because of poor eyesight this was obviously during the first world war um in may 1918 he sailed from new york and arrived in paris as the city was under bombardment from german artillery he literally like got off the boat and it was like boom 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 and he's like 17 but he but he so, loved it oh he loved it Ooh, he loved it he's such an adrenaline junkie so that june he arrived at the italian front and on his first day in milan he was sent to the scene of a munitions factory explosion where rescuers retrieved the shredded remains of female workers Ooh. He described the incident in his nonfiction book called Death in the Afternoon. Quote, I remember that after we searched quite thoroughly for the complete dead, we collected fragments. Uh, on July 8th, he was seriously wounded by mortar fire, having just returned from the canteen bringing chocolate and cigarettes for the men at the front line in Fasalta de Piave. And despite his wounds, Hemingway assisted Italian so- soldiers to safety, for which he received the Italian Silver Medal of Bravery. And he was still only 18 at the time. So he saw a lot of shit before he turned 18, wow. basically. 
So he later said of the incident, quote, when you go to war as a boy, you have a great illusion of immortality. Other people get killed, not you. Then when you are badly wounded, the first time you lose that illusion and you know it can happen to you. He sustained severe shrapnel wounds to both legs, underwent an immediate operation at a distribution center, and spent five days at a field hospital before he was transferred for recuperation to the Red Cross Hospital in Milan. He spent six months at the hospital where he met and formed a strong friendship with Chink Dorman Smith, which was a nickname. Uh, I had to make sure that Chink Dorman Smith was nicknamed uh, not racistly, and he was not. (laughs) He was uh, apparently stationed in Africa, and because he had a specifically, um, we'll say, kindly, weird-looking face, apparently he looked a lot like the local antelope, which was called a chinkara. Uh, he had like a long nose and big protruding eyes. So they called him chinkara, and then he was just called chink. Um, so uh, he was friends with him for decades, and he also shared a room with future American Foreign Service officer, ambassador, and author Henry Serrano Villard. So... While he was recuperating, he fell in love for the first time with a woman named Agnes von Kurowski. She was a Red Cross nurse, and she was seven years older than him. Uh, by the time of his- <laughs> I don't know why. I thought you were just going to be like, she was seven. <laughs> <laughs> she was seven years old. And this is where his life get- turns a dark turn. No, uh, she was seven years his senior. She was seven Great. years older. Totally safe. Yep. Uh, By the time of his release and return to the United States in January of 1919, Agnes and Hemingway had decided to marry within a few months in America. However, in March, she wrote that she had become engaged to an Italian officer. And do you blame her? I mean, come on, the Italians. Am I right? Uh, So biographer Jeffrey (laughs) Myers. She just high-fived herself. (laughs) (laughs) Kaboom! Um, In... (laughs) Uh, biographer Jeffrey Meyer states in his book Hemingway, a biography that Hemingway was devastated by Agnes's rejection. And in future relationships, he followed a pattern of abandoning a wife before she abandoned him. So instead of instead of like taking it and learning from this experience, he decided to uh, take that pain from that rejection and really try and, uh, punish every woman he gets into a relationship with for the rest of his life. So um, he returned home early in 1919 to a time of readjustment. Uh, Before the age of 20, he had gained from the war a maturity that was at odds with living at home without a job and with a need for recuperation. So in September, he took a fishing and camping trip with some high school friends to the backcountry of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Uh, The trip became the inspiration for his short story, which was called Big Two-Hearted River, in which the semi-autobiographical character of Nick Adams takes to the country to find solitude after returning from the war. Most of his books are, uh, if wholly, if not in part, like thinly veiled biographies of Mm -hmm. where he is at the time. Um, so a family friend offered him a job in Toronto and with nothing else to do, he accepted. So late that year, he began as a freelancer and staff writer for the Toronto Star Weekly. And he returned to Michigan the following June and then moved to Chicago in September 1920 to live with some friends while still filing stories for the Toronto Star. Uh, Also in Chicago, he worked as an associate editor of the monthly journal called Cooperative Commonwealth, where he met novelist Sherwood Anderson, and they became friends. And they were friends for a very long time. Um, so when St. Louis native Hadley Richardson came to Chicago to visit the sister of Hemingway's roommate, Hemingway became infatuated. Uh, he later claimed, quote, I knew she was the girl I was going to marry. Hadley, who was red haired with a nurturing instinct, was eight years older than Hemingway. Uh, he really had a thing for older ladies. Mm. Um, 
So despite the age difference, Hadley, who had grown up with an overprotective mother, seemed less mature than usual for a young woman her age. Uh, Bernice Kurt, who is the author of The Hemingway Women, claims Hadley was evocative of Agnes, but that Hadley had a childishness that Agnes lacked. Um, the two corresponded for a few months and then decided to marry and travel to Europe, and they wanted to visit Rome, but Sherwood Anderson convinced them to visit Paris instead, which would become um, very influential. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote letters of introduction for the young couple so that they could settle in. They were married on September 3rd, 1921. And two months later, Hemingway was hired as a foreign correspondent for the Toronto Star, and the couple left for Paris. Um, Of Hemingway's marriage to Hadley, Myers claims, with Hadley, Hemingway achieved everything he had hoped for with Agnes, the love of a beautiful woman, a comfortable income, a life in Europe. However, Hadley was clearly more malleable than Agnes would have been, presumably given her childlike nature. So she was kind of like a substitute for Agnes who was like willing to do what Ernest wanted. Okay. Yeah. Pliable. Pliable, exactly. So in Paris, Hemingway met American writer and art collector Gertrude Stein, Irish novelist James Joyce, American poet Ezra Pound, who would become kind of a father figure for Ernest and other writers. Uh, The Hemingway of the early Paris years was, quote, tall, handsome, muscular, broad-shouldered, brown-eyed, rosy-cheeked, square-jawed, soft-voiced young man. Mm. So he was, can I tell you? stone cold fox he was good looking and he was i mean he was pretty handsome like up until like his his death like he was Mm -hmm. a handsome guy he was like you know you know i love a square guy with a beard and ernest hemingway is uh, i mean come on he's a square guy with a beard um but he was clean shaven while he was in paris Mm, okay um he and hadley lived in a small walk-up in the latin quarter and he worked in a rented room in a nearby building um, Stein, who was the bastion of modernism in Paris, became Hemingway's mentor and godmother to his son, Jack. Um, she also introduced him to the expatriate artists and writers of the Montparnasse Quarter, who she referred to as the Lost Generation, a term Hemingway popularized with the publication of The Sun Also Rises. So <clears throat> this idea of the Lost Generation is basically... All of these people who were affected by the First World War, they were young, they kind of came of age during the First World War, and they were lost because the world is so different now. And a lot of them tended to, especially if they were of comfortable means, travel to different parts of the world and just kind of like try and find a place for themselves. Mm -hmm. So um, it was kind of romanticized as the lost generation by Gertrude Stein and, you know, subsequently by Hemingway. Uh, a regular at Stein Salon, Hemingway met influential painters such as Pablo Picasso, Yon Miro, and Juan Gris, and he eventually withdrew from Stein's influence and their relationship deteriorated into a literary quarrel that spanned decades. So they got Ooh. into a tiff, and then they stopped speaking for a very long time. Um, the movie Midnight in Paris yes, with um, Owen Wilson, was is I thought it was surprisingly good. And it was very good. does a great job of describing that period. Of. Yes. I I bought it on DVD when that was still like a thing. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, Midnight in Paris, I am certainly not somebody who uh, wants to promote a Woody Allen film, but it's very good. And it does really it's I mean, it's good bit of magical realism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's well acted. And Corey Stoll plays young Ernest Hemingway. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Corey Stoll is like a bald actor and he wears like a piece. But he does a like a phenomenal Hemingway impression. It's amazing. So it's worth watching. Uh, and Kathy Bates plays Gertrude Stein, yeah. which is like the best casting. Um, it's worth watching for the good casting decisions and like just like really solid impressions that don't turn into 
like weird yeah. parodies of itself. It gives, like you're not. And it gives you like a good idea of who was around then. And it kind yes. of like if you're a visual person, like being able to see these actors playing these mm-hmm. people and then have that impress upon your brain. Um, yeah. Who was there and, and what they were known for. Yeah. Because right now, like you think of all these these artists and writers and things, they're kind of like larger than life and you can't really imagine these hugely influential people in their fields like hanging around and chatting and like yeah. you know getting drunk and like spending time in paris so it's a good illustration of that for mm-hmm. sure i highly recommend um <clears throat> see if you can steal it get it for free uh so <laughs> Uh, Ezra Pound met Hemingway by chance at Sylvia's, Sylvia Beach's bookshop, uh, Shakespeare and Company, in 1922. And the two toured Italy in 1923 and lived on the same street in 1924. So they were very close. Um, in Hemingway, Pound recognized and fostered a young talent. Um, Pound, unfortunately, introduced Hemingway to James Joyce, with whom Hemingway frequently embarked on alcoholic sprees. So if you said name two guys in the 1920s who got (laughs) two two insufferable male writers who got Mm -hmm. together in the 20s and just got hammered together, I would absolutely have guessed Hemingway and James Joyce. You would have got it in one. Absolutely. And it's true. They did. They would just just absolutely get hammered together. So, I mean, what are you going to do? However, during his first 20 months in Paris, he filed 88 stories for the Toronto Star newspaper. So productive. Um, Yeah, very productive. He covered the Greco-Turkish War, which he witnessed the burning of Smyrna, and wrote travel pieces such as tuna fishing in Spain and trout fishing all across Europe, colon, Spain has the best, then Germany. (laughs) Hmm. So he wasn't just covering conflicts. He was also no, kind no. of getting them to pay for his like leisure activities. <laughs> yes, exactly. He wasn't stupid. Also, oh, here's another thing. I mean, he filed 88 stories in 20 months. He wrote so fast. And mm. there'll be more like about how quickly he wrote. But I think this had a lot to do with like how he had a, you know, just a, a base knowledge in journalism and was just used to filing stories very quickly. But his books are not long and they are, they were written so fast. Like I can't imagine writing that fast, even with like a computer, you know, (laughs) like just like physically writing that quickly. Anyway. um, Also during this time, he described the retreat of the Greek army with civilians from East Thrace. Um, So Hemingway was devastated at this point on learning that Hadley had lost a suitcase filled with his manuscripts at the Gare de Lyon as she was traveling to Geneva to meet him in December 1922. Yeah. Uh, The following September, the couple returned to Toronto, where their son, John Hadley Nicanor, was born on October 10th, 1923. Uh, During their absence, Hemingway's first book, Three Stories and Ten Poems, was published. Uh, two of the stories it contained were all that remained after the loss of the suitcase, and the third had been written early the previous year in Italy. Within months, a second volume, which was called In Our Time, it had no capitals, little lowercase, everything, In Our Time, uh, that was published. Uh, the small volume included six vignettes and a dozen stories Hemingway had written the previous summer during his first visit to Spain, where he discovered the thrill of bullfighting. Uh, he missed, <laughs> yeah, he really loved bullfighting, that's another thing. Um, he missed Paris, considered Toronto boring, and wanted to return to the life of a writer rather than live the life of a journalist. Uh, Hemingway, Hadley, and their son, who was nicknamed Bumby, returned to Paris in January 1924 and moved into a new apartment. 
Uh, Hemingway helped Ford Maddox Ford edit the Transatlantic Review, which published works by Pound, John Dos Passos, Baroness Elsa von Freytag Loringhoven, which you may remember from my episode on surrealism. Yeah. Like two weeks ago. She was also a writer. Mm Mm-hmm. And also Gertrude Stein, as well as some some of Hemingway's own early stories, such as Indian Camp. Um, Indian Camp received considerable praise. Uh, Ford Maddox Ford saw it as an important early story by a young writer, and critics in the United States praised Hemingway for reinvigorating the short story genre with his crisp style and use of declarative sentences. Uh, Six months earlier, Hemingway had met F. Scott Fitzgerald, and the pair formed a friendship of admiration and hostility. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fitzgerald had published The Great Gatsby the same year. Uh, Hemingway read it, liked it, and decided that his next work had to be a novel. So, uh, with his wife, Hadley, uh, Hemingway uh, first visited the Festival of San Fermin in Pamplona, Spain, in 1923, where he became fascinated by bullfighting, as I mentioned before. It is at this time that he began to be referred to as Papa, even by much older friends. Okay. Uh, Hadley would later recall that Hemingway had his own nicknames for everybody and that he often did things for his friends. Uh, she suggested that he liked to be looked up to. She didn't re- remember precisely how the nickname came into being. However, it definitely stuck. He called himself Papa. Everybody called him Papa. Whatever. Um, a few days after the fiesta ended on his birthday, July 21st, uh, he began to write the draft of what would become The Sun Also Rises, finishing eight weeks later. Uh, a few, yeah, a few months later in December 1925, the Hemingways left to spend the winter in Schroon's Austria, where Hemingway began revising the manuscript extensively. Uh, Pauline Pfeiffer, a friend of the family and a journalist herself, joined them in January and against Hadley's advice, urged Hemingway to sign a contract with Scribner's. Uh, Scribner's was an American publisher ba- based in New York City. Um, it actually still exists in a certain way. It later merged into Macmillan, and then it turned into, uh, and then uh, Simon and Schuster bought Macmillan, and mm-hmm. so it's part of Simon and Simon and Schuster. Um, he left Austria for a quick trip to New York to meet with the publishers, and on his return during a stop in Paris, he began an affair with Pauline Pfeiffer. Ay-ay-ay. Papa, so, I know Papa. He's incorrigible. So let's talk a little bit about um, the sun also rises. So I just. Hit a button wrong, and here we go. Okay. Um, Okay, so The Sun Also Rises epitomized the post-war expatriate generation. It received good reviews. It's recognized as Hemingway's greatest work to some. Um, Hemingway later uh, wrote to his editor, Max Perkins, that the point of the book was not so much about a generation being lost, but that the earth abideth forever. Um, He believed that the characters in The Sun Also Rises may have been battered, but not lost. So the plot is basically about a thinly veiled Hemingway protagonist. His name is Jake Barnes. Um, he's an American journalist expat who falls in love with a promiscuous English woman whose name is Lady Brett Ashley during a visit to Spain amongst bullfighting and jealousies, etc., etc. There are lots of other characters who are basically his friends at the time, and they all have affairs with or are in love with Brett. It's like, you know, pain and suffering and love and joy and, you know, like the the darkness of being young and, and, you know, not being home and all this stuff. So that's The Sun Also Rises. Jake Barnes, Lady Brett Ashley. Bullfighting. Bullfighting. Spain. So uh, back to Hemingway. Uh, his marriage to Hadley surprisingly deteriorated mm-hmm. as he was working on The Sun Also Rises. In early 1926, Hadley became aware of his affair with Pfeiffer, who came to Pamplona with them that July. So he, like, invited him, invited her to come with him and his family. Like, like NBD, like, yeah, nobody. Like, just, 
don't even worry about it. Like, Hadley, be cool. Like, Pauline's coming too. Whatever. Like, it's happening. So, on their return to Paris, Hadley asked for a separation. Uh, in November, she formally requested a divorce, and they split their possessions while Hadley accepted Hemingway's offer of the proceeds from The Sun Also Rises. So she got the proceeds for it. All right. Um, they were dis- divorced in January 1927, and Hemingway married Pfeiffer in May. So mm-hmm. he took no, he didn't wait on that. So Pauline Pfeiffer, she was from a wealthy Catholic Arkansas family. She had moved to Paris to work for Vogue magazine. She was a writer. Um, he seemed to have a thing for, since after Hadley, he seemed to have a thing for like lady journalists and writers. Was she older um, than him? Uh, I don't think so. I think, <laughs> I think she was, she was around his age. Age appropriate. Age appropriate lady. Um, so before their marriage, Hemingway converted to Catholicism for her and oh. they honeymooned on Le Grand du Roy, which he, uh, where he contracted anthrax. So what? Here's the thing about uh, Ernest Hemingway that you're gonna catch. You're gonna catch this. He is probably the most accident-prone gentleman <laughs> of the early 20th century that you will ever hear of. He gets beat up so much it's crazy. So he contracted anthrax, which is just like what? So he gets anthrax in France, um, and then also he was planning his next collection of short stories, which was called Men Without Women. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, and that was published in October 1927. That included his boxing story, which is called 50 Grand. Uh, Cosmopolitan Magazine editor-in-chief Ray Long praised 50 Grand, calling it one of the best short stories that ever came into my hands, the best prize fight story I ever read, a remarkable piece of realism. By the end of the year, Pauline, who was pregnant, wanted to move back to America, and John Dos Passos, their friend, recommended Key West. So they left Paris in March 1928. Um... Hemingway suffered a severe injury in their Paris bathroom when he pulled a skylight down on his head thinking he was pulling on a toilet chain. (laughs) Yeah. How hammered was he? Super hammered. He had to be. Um, This apparently left him with a prominent forehead scar, which he carried for the rest of his life. Uh, (laughs) When... (laughs) It wasn't when, a knife fight. No, it wasn't from no, bullfighting. Not a war It wasn't war from wound. the war. He no. smacked himself in the head with a window. <laughs> when he was drunk. Uh, when he was, obviously, when he was asked about the scar, he was reluctant to answer. Uh-huh. Like, just make up a, like, just make up a lie. Clearly, you have plenty of terrible things that are happening to you. So... After his departure from Paris, Hemingway never again lived in a big city. So... Um, Hemingway and Pauline traveled to Kansas City, where their son Patrick was born on June 28th, 1928. Uh, in the winter, when he was in New York with Bumby, about to board a train to Florida, uh, he received a cable telling him that his father had killed himself. Uh, Hemingway was devastated, having earlier written to his father telling him not to worry about financial difficulties, and the letter arrived minutes after his no. father's suicide. It's awful. So he killed himself over money? Yeah. It was oh. really awful. So Hemingway realized how Hadley must have felt after her own father's suicide in 1903, and he commented, quote, I'll probably go the same way. Jesus. Yeah. It's crazy. So um, upon his return to Key West in December, Hemingway worked on the draft of A Farewell to Arms before leaving for France in January. Uh, The completed novel was published in September 1929. In Spain in mid-1929, Hemingway researched his next work, which was called Death in the Afternoon. He wanted to write a comprehensive treatise on bullfighting, explaining with glossaries and appendices because he believed bullfighting was of great tragic interest, being literally of life and death. So, A Farewell to Arms. Big one. 
is basically the story of Ernest's love affair for Agnes von Karowski, except in the book, they do get together and she gets pregnant and they flee to Switzerland only for her, both she and the baby to die in childbirth. And then the last scene is like, Ernest is like walking through the rainy streets of Switzerland and goes back to his hotel room. So farewell to arms is basically about Agnes and Ernest. Um, there was a movie made with Sandra Bullock uh, called In Love and War, which is basically like a weird combination of a, a farewell to arms and Ernest Hemingway's like story of Agnes. Mm-hmm. Um, it did not do well. That was like 2002. Hmm. So uh, during the early 1930s, Hemingway spent his winters in Key West and summers in Wyoming, where he found the most beautiful country he had seen in the American West and hunted deer, elk and grizzly bear. He was a big hunter. He was joined there by Dos Passos, and in November 1930, after bringing Dos Passos to the train station in Billings, Montana, Hemingway broke his arm in a car accident. Uh, The surgeon tended the compound spiral fracture and bound the bone with kangaroo tendon. Uh, He was where did he get kangaroo? I don't know. It's the it's you know it's the West Montana. People probably had like a kangaroo farm. You know I don't know. He was hospitalized for seven weeks with Pauline tending to him. The nerves in his writing hand took as long as a year to heal, uh, during which time he suffered intense pain. Because they put an they put an animal tendon. Into I know, him. right? So his third child, uh, named Gregory Hancock Hemingway, was born a year later on November twelfth, nineteen thirty one, in Kansas City. Interesting story about Gregory Hemingway. So Gregory was a uh, was a trans woman. Okay, who um lived their i'm going to refer to them as they uh they lived their life as a man and a woman uh calling themselves gloria when they um lived as a woman and actually had uh gender confirmation surgery in 1995 oh wow um but it seemed that they had a lot of conflict with that um towards the end of their life they presented themselves as gregory as male and in interviews and things was presented as male um even after they had had the gender confirmation surgery so it seemed that they had had like a real struggle with that throughout their life and it was kind of a scandal sort of in the 80s and 90s um but they died i believe in the early 2000s um from a heart attack or something like that uh, but yeah that was an interesting story oh. because they lived as a man for most of their life but Definitely had some conflicting gender issues. So that was interesting. Wow. Um, Pauline's uncle bought the couple a house in Key West with a carriage house, the second floor of which was converted into a writing studio. Um, And while in Key West, Hemingway frequented the local bar Sloppy Joe's. I've been there. It's a dive. Um, That's kind of their thing. Sloppy Joe's is like, this is the place where Hemingway hung out and drank a ton of booze. Um, And uh, it's a cool place. And also Sloppy Joe's has a live cam. Uh, where you can like go to their website and just like look at the bar and see people like hanging out. Also, there's an er- Ernest Hemingway lookalike contest in Key West every year in August, and uh, they have it at Sloppy Joe's. And Ernest Hemingway lost the very first Ernest Hemingway. Look- <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I don't know. They also have um, they have this great, and it's all for charity. Like it's all like raise, and every year they they raise money for a different like charity but they do uh the running of the papas which is mm-hmm. <laughs> which is which is a marathon through key west so it's like all of these these hemingway lookalikes like running through the streets so everyone has a beard and a cuban hat and mm-hmm. a cigar dangling yep. from their mouth 
and they're none of them are healthy looking. So they're all like <laughs> running through the streets of Key West in August. <laughs> and it's called the running of the papas. Look it up online. It's such a cool thing. Um, they've been doing it a really long time. I think they've been doing it since the 70s, I want to say. Wow. Um, but a friend of mine, my friend Rich, um, went last year because we I used to joke because he's such a handsome guy. Um we used to joke that Rich looked exactly like Ernest Hemingway. And I told him about it because when he was working at the museum, he's a conservator. And I told him about it. I was like, you should do this. And he did like they chartered a boat and he did like some like fishing on the coast and they stayed in Key West. And he, uh, he went through, he got through like the first round. Wow. As a first time Papa. That's so very fun. Yeah, he sent me some pictures. It was really cool. He said he had like the white sweater with like the roll neck and he like even did like a a brief impression. That's another thing. There's like a performance aspect to it. (laughs) It's great. Uh, Key West is the best. So anyway, so he's in he's in Key West now. Hangs out at Sloppy Joe's. Uh, He invited friends to join him on fishing trips and on an all-male expedition to the Dry Tortugas. Uh, Meanwhile, he continued to travel to Europe and to Cuba. And although in 1933 he wrote of Key West, quote, we have a fine house here and kids are all well, uh, a biographer believes he was plainly restless. Mm. So uh, in 1933, Hemingway and Pauline went on safari to East Africa. Uh, the 10 week trip provided material for green hills of Africa, as well as the short stories, the snows of Kilimanjaro and the short, happy life of Francis McComber. Mm, Uh, their guide was the noted white hunter, Philip Percival, who had guided Theodore Roosevelt on his 1909 safari. And during these travels, Hemingway contracted amoebic dysentery that caused a prolapsed intestine. And he was, (laughs) he was evacuated by plane to Nairobi an experience reflected in the snows of Kilimanjaro. Uh, On Hemingway's return to Key West in early 1934, he began work on the green hills of Africa, which he published in 1935 to mixed reviews. Again, green hills of Africa is just like a vaguely semi autobiographical story of him being in Africa. Um, Hemingway bought a boat in 1934. He named it the Pilar and he began sailing the Caribbean. In 1935, he first arrived at Bimini where he spent a considerable amount of time. And during this period, he also worked on to have and have not published in 1937 while he was in Spain, the only novel he wrote during the 1930s. So to have and have not, uh, the book is about Harry Morgan, who is a fishing boat captain out of Key West who turns to a life of crime after the depression hits. Uh, He smuggles people in illegal cargo back and forth to Cuba, and it basically tells the story of the haves, who are wealthy yacht owners unaffected by the economic downturn, and the have-nots, who are poor residents and minorities living in Key West. So that's to have and to have not. That's all about Key West and Cuba. Great. He loved Cuba. Oh. Oh, he loved Cuba. So, oh, we'll talk about Cuba. Uh, In 1937, Hemingway left for Spain to cover the Spanish Civil War for the North American Newspaper Alliance, despite Pauline's reluctance to have him working in a war zone. She's like, you're getting older. You have kids. Let's just stay in Key West. And he was like, no, I love it. You're part kangaroo. Um, He's part kangaroo. Like, maybe take it easy. Never takes it easy. Um, He was joined in Spain by journalist and writer Martha Gellhorn, who he had met in Key West a year earlier. Uh, like Hadley, Martha was a St. Louis native, and like Pauline, she had worked for Vogue in Paris. Uh, of Martha, Kurt, who uh, who wrote The Hemingway Women, mm-hmm. uh, she explains she never catered to him the way other women did. So Martha Gellhorn is a pistol. Like, she 
I mean, she wasn't like innocent in this whole thing because he definitely had an affair with her. But she was like, it seemed like she was the only woman in his life who gave it back to him as good as he got. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So um, late in 1937, while in Madrid with Martha, Hemingway wrote his only play, which is called The Fifth Column, as the city was being bombarded by Francoist forces. He returned to Key West for a few months, then back to Spain twice in 1938, where he was present at the Battle of the Ebro, the last Republican stand, and was among the British and American journalists who were some of the last to leave the battle as they crossed the river. Wow. So he was like in the shit. Like he was in it. So in early 1939, Hemingway crossed to Cuba in his boat to live at the Hotel Ambos Mundos in Havana. Uh, This was the separation phase of a slow and painful split from Pauline, which began when Hemingway met Martha Gellhorn. Uh, Martha soon soon joined him in Cuba, and they rented uh, Finca Vieja, which is Lookout Farm, a 15-acre property 15 miles from Havana. Uh, Pauline and the children left Hemingway that summer and after the family was reunited during a visit to Wyoming, when his divorce from Pauline was finalized, he and Martha were married on November 20th, 1940 in Cheyenne, Wyoming. So again, divorced the woman, uh, he was with and then quickly turned around and married the woman he was having an affair with. So, hmm. Uh, Hemingway moved his primary summer residence to Ketchum, Idaho, and moved his winter residence to Cuba. Um, He had been disgusted when a Parisian friend allowed his cats to eat from the table, but then he became enamored of cats in Cuba and kept dozens of them on the property. Um, One of them, called Snowball, an all-white cat, is the ancestor of a lot of the cats at the Hemingway House in Key West, which I've been to. Mm. The Hemingway House in Key West is a very cool place. If you are allergic to cats, you should go nowhere near it. There are a ton of cats there. The whole place smells like cat, which is not my favorite thing. Um, But it's very, it's funny because it's, it's a historic home. Like, you know, you, you go on a tour. You can't, like, just walk around the, the house. You have to go with a tour guide. Um, you know, you can't touch things. You can't, like, there. all these rooms are, like, cordoned off. But all these cats are, like, like sleeping on the bed. Meow, 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 meow. Yeah. Rubbing their butts on, on things. Rubbing their butts on things. Getting their nasty little toe beans all over everything. Um, so I don't know how the museum workers there. I don't know. It's Key West. Like, Key West people are like, man, it's fine. Um, but it is kind of funny because there are like a lot of cats. <laughs> so many cats. Like you go into the gift shop and you want you go to like those little cubby holes where they keep the shirts mm-hmm. and you go to like grab a shirt, but there's a cat sleeping <laughs> on the pile of shirts in the <laughs> in the gift shop. So so but a lot of all like almost all the white cats, or at least a good portion of the white cats at the Hemingway House in Key West are descendants of Snowball. And they have so. six toes. And they have six toes. Yes. Yes. Um, so back to Martha Gellhorn. Uh, she inspired him to write his most famous novel, For Whom the Bell Tolls, which he started in March of 1939 and finished in July 1940. Uh, it was published in October 1940, and it became a book of the month club choice, sold half a million copies within months, and was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. And, quote, triumphantly reestablished Hemingway's literary reputation in the words of a biographer, Myers. So, For Whom the Bell Tolls graphically describes the brutality of the Spanish Civil War. 
It is told primarily through the thoughts and experiences of the protagonist, whose name is Robert Jordan, who is definitely Ernest Hemingway. It draws on Hemingway's own experiences in the Spanish Civil War as a reporter for the North American Newspaper Alliance. So Jordan is an American who lives in pre-war Spain and fights as an irregular soldier for the Republic against Franco- Francisco Franco's fascist forces. Ooh, ooh. Um, he falls in love with a broken Spanish woman named Maria. Uh, he heroically saves a bunch of people during a skirmish, but is mortally wounded in the process. And the book ends with him bidding farewell to Maria and his comrades as he plans one last ambush against the fascist forces. It's basically war porn. So <clears throat> that's for whom the bell tolls. It's basically Hemingway's experiences, like thinly veiled experiences in the Spanish Civil War. All of his protagonist names are just such like... Good masculine American yes. boy names. <laughs> yes. Jake Nick Barnes. Adams. Yeah. <laughs> Robert, Robert Jordan. Jordan. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of like short masculine names. Um, so in January 1941, Martha was sent to China on assignment for Collier's magazine, and Hemingway went with her, sending in dispatches for the newspaper PM, but in general, He disliked China. Um, A 2009 book suggests during that period, he may have been recruited to work for Soviet intelligence agents under the name Agent Argo. But that has not been proven. Um, They returned to Cuba before the declaration of war by the United States that December when he convinced the Cuban government to help him refit the Pilar, which he intended to use to ambush German submarines off the coast of Cuba. He was like, I'm going to kill. I'm going to kill a bunch of Germans with my tiny boat. How drunk was he? <laughs> I mean, at this point, you can probably guarantee super drunk. Like, he was basically drunk all the time. So between May 1944 and March 1945, he was in Europe, like, traveling around. When he arrived in London, he met Time Magazine correspondent Mary Welsh, with whom he became infatuated. Oh, uh, I know. I know. I know. Martha had been forced to cross the Atlantic in a ship filled with explosives because Hemingway refused to help her get a press pass on a plane, and she arrived in London to find him hospitalized with a concussion from a car accident. (laughs) She was, as you can imagine, super unsympathetic and accused him of being a bully and told him that she was through, absolutely finished. The last time that Hemingway saw Martha was in March 1945 as he was preparing to return to Cuba, and their divorce was finalized later that year. Meanwhile, he had asked Mary Welsh to marry him on their third meeting. Dear Reddit, my my parentheses 42M wife, parentheses 43F, is mad at me because I made her get on a plane filled with explosives. Yes. <laughs> Am I the asshole? Yeah. Yeah. So Martha was like, you know what? That's it. I'm done. And then was like, done. Martha knew it was good up. For her. I mean, sh- good for her. She shouldn't have married him in the first place. But, you know, no one, nobody's perfect. We've all made that mistake. We've all dated that guy. So. Hemingway accompanied the troops to the Normandy landings wearing a large head bandage, (laughs) Uh, according to his biographer, but he was considered precious cargo and not allowed ashore. Uh, The landing craft came within sight of Omaha Beach before coming under enemy fire and turning back. Wow. So he was like there. He was there. The storming of Omaha Beach. And people knew him. Like they knew who he was at this point. They're like, there's Hemingway. See the guy with the big bandage? He was in a car accident. got a concussion. That's Hemingway. Be like, oh my God. Um, 
So Hemingway later wrote in Collier's that he could see, quote, the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth waves of landing troops lay where they had fallen, looking like so many heavily laden bundles on the flat, pebbly stretch between the sea and first cover. So late in July, he attached himself to the 22nd Infantry Regiment, commanded by Colonel Charles Buck Lanham as it drove toward Paris, and Hemingway became de facto leader to a small band of village militia and Rambouet outside of Paris. Um, a biographer remarks, Hemingway got into considerable trouble playing infantry captain to a group of resistance people that he gathered because a correspondent is not supposed to lead troops, even if he does it well. <laughs> uh, this was, in fact, in contravention of the Geneva Convention, and Hemingway was brought up on formal charges. He said that he beat the rap by claiming that he only offered advice. Oh, my God. So he drank Four bottles of wine. <laughs> and he was like, we're going this way. Let's go, guys. <laughs> so in, on August 25th, he was president at the liberation of Paris as a journalist. Contrary to the Hemingway legend, he was not the first into the city, nor did he liberate the Ritz. He was there, but he wasn't like, you know, running around yeah. saving people's asses. He did love the Ritz. Oh, he loved the Ritz. Um, in Paris, he visited Sylvia Beach and Pablo Picasso with Mary Welsh, who joined him there. And in a spirit of happiness, he forgave Gertrude Stein. It sounds more like Gertrude Stein forgave him, but, you know, whatever. So they're friends again, thankfully. Um, on December 17th, 1944, he had himself driven to Luxembourg in spite of illness to cover the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, as soon as he arrived, however, uh, Lanham handed him to the doctors who hospitalized him with pneumonia. Uh, he recovered a week later, but most of the fighting was over, so he missed mm -hmm. it because he was sick. Uh, in 1947, Hemingway was awarded a Bronze Star for his bravery during World War II. He was recognized for having been, quote, under fire in combat areas in order to obtain an accurate picture of conditions, with the commendation that through his talents of expression, Mr. Hemingway enabled readers to obtain a vivid picture of the difficulties and triumphs of the frontline soldier and his organization in combat. So... He's like at every war, he's at every conflict, he's like in the shit, he loves this. This is his favorite thing. Besides women. Besides women, like he's bad at women. Um, Hemingway said that he was out of business as a writer from 1942 to 1945 during his residence in Cuba. And in 1946, he married Mary, who had an ectopic pregnancy five months later. Mm. Uh, the Hemingway family suffered a series of accidents and health problems in the years following the war. In a 1945 car accident, he smashed his knee and sustained another deep wound on his forehead. Uh, Mary broke first her right ankle and then her left in successive skiing accidents. Uh, a 1947 car accident left Patrick with a head wound and severely ill. Hemingway sank into depression as his literary friends began to die. In 1939, William Butler Yeats and Ford Maddox Ford. In 1940, F. Scott Fitzgerald. 1941, Sherwood Anderson and James Joyce. In 1946, Gertrude Stein. In the following year, in 1947, Max Perkins, Hemingway's longtime Scribner's editor and friend. Uh, during this period, he suffered from severe headaches, high blood pressure, weight problems, and eventually diabetes, much of which was the result of previous accidents and many years of heavy drinking. Nonetheless, in January 1946, he began work on The Garden of Eden, finishing 800 pages by June. Uh, during the post-war years, he also began to work on a trilogy tentatively titled The Land, The Sea, and The Air, which he wanted to combine into one novel titled The Sea Book. However, both projects stalled, and, and a biographer says that Hemingway's inability to continue was a symptom of his troubles during these years. 
1948, Hemingway and Mary traveled to Europe, staying in Venice for several months. While there, Hemingway fell in love with the then 19-year-old Adriana Ivancic. So he was 47 and she was 19. What could go wrong? Uh, what could possibly go Dear wrong? Dear Reddit, um, my, parentheses, <laughs> 19F, boyfriend, parentheses, 47M. <laughs> Is totally is, willing to leave his wife. <laughs> Am I the asshole? <laughs> um, so apparently their their love affair was never consummated. They had a platonic love affair, whatever that means. Um, this inspired the novel Across the River and Into the Trees, which was written in Cuba during a time of strife with Mary and published in 1952 negative reviews. Because people were like, all right, all right, like, mm, okay, Ernie, we got it. Uh, so the following year, furious at the critical reception of across the river and into the trees, he wrote the draft of the old man in the sea in eight weeks saying that it was the best I can write ever for all of my life. So the old man in the sea became a book of the month selection, made Hemingway an international celebrity and won the Pulitzer prize in May, 1952, a month before he left for a second trip to Africa. So the old man in the sea, what's it about? It's about an old man in the sea. The end. No. It's about a little bit more than that. It is about an old, unlucky man named Santiago who dream whose dream is to catch a giant marlin, basically. So he goes out. He manages to catch one on his line one day, but he isn't strong enough to pull it into the boat. So he struggles with it for like two days. And then when he manages to kill it and start for home, a bunch of sharks come and eat it up. And then he drags the carcass home and falls asleep in his bed. So that's the end. That's the whole fantasy. It's very, it has elements of, you know, Moby Dick. It has elements of like a man coming to terms with like aging and death and all of this stuff. So dreams deferred, that kind of thing. Uh, in 1954, while in Africa, Hemingway was almost fatally injured in two successive plane crashes in as many days. Jesus. So what happened was he chartered a sightseeing flight over the Belgian Congo as a Christmas present to Mary. And on their way to photograph uh, Murchison Falls from the air, the plane struck an abandoned utility pole and crash landed in heavy brush. Hemingway's injuries included a head wound while Mary broke two ribs. The next day, attempting to reach medical care in Entebbe, they boarded a second plane that exploded at takeoff. No. With Hemingway suffering burns and another concussion, this one serious enough to cause leaking of cerebral fluid. This guy has had a dozen concussions at this point. He has had, he, he is just, his brain is After two, mush. they don't let you play sports anymore. Yeah, let alone, like, get into two successive plane crashes. It's crazy. So they eventually arrived in Entebbe to find reporters covering the story of Hemingway's death. That's how bad this oh explosion my God. was. <laughs> they were like, this guy totally died. So when he got there, he briefed the reporters and spent the next few weeks recuperating and reading his erroneous obituaries. Reports of my death have been strongly exaggerated. Exactly. Um, despite his injuries, Hemingway accompanied Patrick and his wife on a planned fishing expedition in February, but pain caused him to be irascible and difficult to get along with, as you can imagine. Uh, when a brush fryer broke out, he was again injured, sustaining second degree burns on his legs, front torso, lips, left hand, and right forearm. So <laughs> I, I laugh, but it's like, this is like the worst possible thing. He gets so injured. He's like slowly recuperating. He says, no, 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 I'm going on this fishing trip. I promised that I would go. He's a dick the whole time. A bushfire breaks out and then he just burns like most of his Jesus. body. So my 
My mom always said that my grandma always would always say that God protects babies and drunks. And apparently Hemingway was not included in that. <laughs> well, no, exactly. He wasn't dying. Oh, yeah. He, yeah, he didn't die. He survived. No, you're right. You're right. And he was, he was probably pickled. drunk. He was pickled from the inside yeah. out. Boof. Burned, broken, messed up. It's awful. So months later in Venice, Mary reported to friends the full extent of Hemingway's injuries. Right? Ready? Two cracked discs in his back, a kidney and a liver rupture, a dislocated shoulder, and a broken skull. This is just from like the recent accidents. This is not like historical accidents. This is like just what maybe happened to Mary him. was beating him up. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Like maybe it's these women were like, that's it. I'm done. Oh, Ernie, don't you remember you were driving the car and you hit a tree? <laughs> Ernie, you're so, you were so drunk. It's so you got to stop you drinking. Fell down you can the never stairs. remember. I wasn't even home at all. Oh, baby, it's, it's your forgetums. It's your forgetums. It's your forgetums. Oh, yeah, yeah. So these accidents probably precipitated the physical deterioration that was to follow. Yeah. So from here on out, Ernest is just not doing great. Um, after the plane crashes, Hemingway, who had been already a thinly controlled alcoholic throughout much of his life, drank more heavily than usual to combat the pain of his injuries. So in October of 1954, Hemingway received the Nobel Prize in Literature. He modestly told the press that other writers deserved the prize, but he gladly accepted the prize money. <laughs> um, a biographer says Hemingway had coveted the Nobel Prize, but when he won it months after his plane accidents and the ensuing worldwide press coverage, there must have been a lingering suspicion in Hemingway's mind that his obituary notices had played a part in the Academy's decision. Um, because he was suffering pain from the African accidents, he decided against traveling to Stockholm. Instead, he sent a speech to be read, which he actually recorded in his own voice later. And I listened to it. And his voice is, and of course, like, this is older technology, so there tends to be kind of a tinniness mm -hmm. to early recording stuff, as you probably know. So I don't know how accurate, like, the tone of his voice is, but... Um, it's interesting, like, you see pictures of him and you imagine him having, like, a very... Well, you always imagine, like major male figures to have like a deep rich voice Big that's like burly. commanding mm -hmm. yeah his voice was kind of high he had like a real flat midwestern accent and it was just kind of like oh hmm that's Hemingway huh how about that <laughs> like, how about that not exactly like imposing so I thought that was interesting it's out there if you look it up it's like his speech was like 30 seconds long like not even it's just a couple of lines so from the end of the year in 1955 to early 1956, Hemingway was basically bedridden. He was told to stop drinking to mitigate liver damage, advice he initially followed, but then obviously disregarded. Um, in October of 1956, he returned to Europe. And during that trip, he became sick again, was treated for high blood pressure, liver disease, and arteriosclerosis. Uh, in November 1956, while staying in Paris, he was reminded of trunks he had stored in the Ritz Hotel in 1928 and never retrieved. Upon reclaiming and opening the trunks, Hemingway discovered that they were filled with notebooks and writings from his Paris years. <gasps> so excited about the discovery, when he returned to Cuba in early 1957, he began to shape the recovered work into his memoir, which is called A Movable Feast. By 1959, he ended a period of intense activity. He finished A Movable Feast, scheduled to be released the following year brought true at first light to 200,000 words, added chapters to the Garden of Eden, and worked on islands in the stream. The last three were stored in a safe deposit box in Havana as he focused on the finishing touches for a movable feast. 
Um, author Michael Reynolds claims that it was during this period that Hemingway slid into depression from which he was unable to recover. That's when he slid into depression? I know, when he's like at his most like productive. productive. Yeah. yeah. Um, so his home, uh, Finca Vigia, became crowded with guests and tourists as Hemingway, beginning to become unhappy with life there, considered a permanent move to Idaho. So in 1959, he bought a home overlooking the Big Wood River outside Ketchum and left Cuba, although he apparently remained on easy terms with the Castro government, telling the New York Times he was delighted with Castro's overflow of Batista. On July 25th, 1960, the Hemingways left Cuba for the last time, leaving art and manuscripts in a bank vault in Havana. And after the 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion, the Finca Vigia was expropriated by the Cuban government, complete with Hemingway's collection of four to 6,000 books. Wow. Yeah. He read and wrote a lot, but he read a ton. He like had this crazy, I mean, obviously he had this crazy huge collection of books that was clearly like not all, four to 6,000 books was clearly not all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, He continued to rework the material that was published as a movable feast through the 1950s. And in mid-1959, he visited Spain to research a series of bullfighting articles commissioned by Life magazine. Life only wanted 10,000 words, but the manuscript grew out of control. He was unable to organize his writing for the first time in his life, so he asked author A.E. Hockner to travel to Cuba to help him. Hockner found Hemingway to be, quote, unusually hesitant, disorganized, and confused, and suffering badly from failing eyesight. He then traveled alone to Spain to be photographed for the front cover of Life magazine. A few days later, the news reported that he was seriously ill and on the verge of dying, which panicked Mary until she received a cable from him telling her, quote, reports false and root Madrid love Papa. He was, in fact, seriously ill and believed himself to be on the verge of a breakdown. Feeling lonely, he took to his bed for days, retreating into silence, despite having the first installments of The Dangerous Summer published in Life in September 1960 to good reviews. In October, he left Spain for New York, where he refused to leave Mary's apartment, presuming that he was being watched. She quickly took him to Idaho, where physician George Saviers met them at the train. So at this time... Hemingway was constantly worried about money and his safety. He worried about his taxes and that he would never return to Cuba to retrieve the manuscripts that he had left in the bank vault. Mm -hmm. And he became paranoid thinking that the FBI was actively monitoring his movements and catch him. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, the FBI had in fact opened a file on him during world war two. Um, when he used the Pilar to patrol the waters off Cuba and J. Edgar Hoover had an agent in Havana watch him during the 1950s. So he was not like, this was not the paranoid delusions of a dying man. This was like based in truth. (laughs) Um, by the end of November, Mary was at her wit's end, and Sevier suggested that Hemingway go to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Uh, Hemingway may have believed that he was going to be treated there for hypertension. Myers writes that an aura of secrecy surrounds Hemingway's treatment at the Mayo, but confirms that he was treated with electroconvulsive therapy as many as 15 times in December 1960 and was released in ruins in January 1961. Mm. So awful. So... He was back in Ketchum in April 1961, three months after being released from the Mayo Clinic, when Mary found Hemingway holding a shotgun in the kitchen one morning. She called Saviers, who sedated him and admitted him to the Sun Valley Hospital. From there, he was returned to the Mayo for more electroshock treatments. Oh, man. I know. He was released in late June and arrived home in Ketchum on June 30th. He then quite deliberately shot himself with his favorite shotgun in the early morning hours of July 2nd, 1961. He was 60 years old. He had unlocked the basement storeroom where his guns were kept, gone upstairs to the front entrance foyer, and shot himself with the double-barreled shotgun that he had used so often it might have been a friend. In the house? In the house. Come on, Ernie. I know, right? Uh, So 
Mary called the Sun Valley Hospital and a doctor quickly arrived at the house, determining that Hemingway had died of a self-inflicted wound to the head. Bernice Kurt writes that it did not seem to her a conscious lie when she told the press that his death had been accidental. In a press interview five years later, Mary confirmed that he had shot himself. So there was some confusion at first, like that, that it was an accident, mm-hmm. that he like was it suicide. Family and friends flew to catch him for the funeral, officiated by the local Catholic priest uh, who believed that the death had been accidental. An altar boy fainted at the head of the cassette during the funeral, and Hemingway's brother Lester wrote, It seemed to me Ernest would have approved of it all. <laughs> he is he is buried in the Ketchum Cemetery. Um, so an interesting thing about Hemingway's behavior during his final years, it apparently had been similar to that of his father before his father killed himself. Oh. So the idea is his father may have had the genetic disease hemochromatosis, whereby the inability to metabolize iron culminates in mental and physical deterioration. Because it's like building up in your brain. In your brain and your blood and everything. Yep. Um, so medical records made available in 1991 confirmed that Hemingway had been diagnosed with hemochromatosis in early 1961. His sister Ursula and his brother Lester also killed themselves. Oh and his granddaughter killed herself too, like 35 years to the day he died. Oh, yeah. Geez. Uh, Hemingway's health was further compromised by being a heavy drinker for most of his life, as you can imagine. So a memorial to Hemingway just north of Sun Valley is inscribed on the base with a eulogy Hemingway had written for a friend several decades later. And that is, best of all, he loved the fall, the leaves yellow on cottonwoods, leaves floating on trout streams and above the hills, the high blue windless skies. Now he will be a part of them forever. So that is my very long but crazy uh, story of, of Ernest Hemingway. That was wonderful. Thank you. It's interesting um, that we can associate him with so many places. Yes. You know what I mean? Like usually you're like, oh yeah, Maine, that's Stephen King. Oh yeah, the Wild West, that's Larry McMurtry. But like with Hemingway, it's like you have Cuba and Key West and Paris and Spain Mm -hmm. and Idaho and like just so many, so many places and they're all very like very strongly associated with him. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. And there's, so there's a lot of like, there's a Ernest Hemingway museum in Cuba. Mm-hmm. There's an Ernest Hemingway, like the Hemingway house in Key West. There's, I think there's one in Idaho. Like it's, it's all like he spent so much time and had so much impact on all of these regions and wrote about them in such mm-hmm. vivid ways that, um, yeah, he's associated as being like truly like a global icon of literature. So, So a little bit, but not much lighter, actually, now that I think about it. Um, My quiz today is called The Importance of Being Earnest, a quiz on Oscar Wilde and his contemporaries. Question number one. This first novel of Oscar's was reviled by contemporary reviewers who called it unclean, poisonous, and heavy with the mephitic odors of moral and spiritual putrefaction. Modern critics, however, has said it is one of the best novels ever written in English, with one author calling it an arresting and slightly camp exercise in late Victorian Gothic. What is this novel, which has been copied, parodied, and made into plays, musicals, and movies since 1910? Question number two. This American artist and friend of Oscars was active during the Gilded Age and spent most of his time in the UK. His most famous painting from 1871 is officially titled Arrangement in Gray and Black Number 1, but you may know it as something more maternal. Who is this artist? Question number three. 
Speaking of wild quotes, complete this now common line frequently and erroneously attributed to Oscar Wilde. Quote, the love that dare not blank, blank, blank. Question number four. This Irish playwright has regularly been rated among British dramatists as second only to Shakespeare, and he has had extensive influence on generations of English language playwrights. His major works include Man and Superman, Pygmalion, and St. Joan, and is honored with a theater festival every summer in Niagara-on-the-Lake. Who is this giant of Western theater? Question number five. Speaking of Ernest, this British actor starred as Algernon in the 2002 movie adaptation of The Importance of Being Ernest and was a huge hit in the U.S. in the late 90s, early 2000s, with roles in My Best Friend's Wedding, An Ideal Husband, and The Next Best Thing. Who is this handsome actor, writer, and singer? Question number six. This Irish author and distant relation of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a friend of Oscar's and actually married his childhood sweetheart. During his lifetime, he was better known as the personal assistant of actor Sir Henry Irving and business manager of the Lyceum Theatre, but you know him for his influential horror novel of The Undead, which he began only weeks after Oscar Wilde's conviction of gross indecency, and was influenced by the novel Carmilla by Sheridan Le Fanu. Who is this bloody writer? Question number seven. This wild play, which starred Sarah Bernhardt and was the toast of Paris and London, is about the titular stepdaughter of Herod Antipas, who, to her stepfather's dismay, but mother's delight, requests the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter as a reward for dancing the dance of the seven veils. Who is this biblical woman who is not related to the cured Italian meat product? Question number eight. True or false? Oscar Wilde lived openly as a gay man and neither married nor had children. Question number nine. Oscar was part of this late 19th century artistic and literary movement centered in Western Europe, which followed an aesthetic ideology of excess and artificiality. The movement was characterized by self-disgust, sickness at the world, general skepticism, delight in perversion and employment of crude humor and a belief in the superiority of human creativity over logic and the natural world. Today, though, you might use this word to describe a particularly rich piece of chocolate cake. What is this movement? And finally, a twist. Question number 10. Starring Jim Varney as the titular Ernest, within one, how many Ernest movies were made altogether? We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be back with your answers. The sun is hot. So am I The workday passes like molasses in the wintertime Yeah, but it's July Getting paid by the hour and over by the minute Boss just put me over a limit I love to call in summer But I think I'll just call it a day Pour me something tall and strong Make it a hurricane before I go I am going to get every single Oscar Wilde question wrong, but I feel really good about the Jim Varney answer. Oh, great. Good. I'm so glad. (laughs) 
Um, in fact, I think I was doing like research for this and we should probably do an Oscar Wilde episode. <laughs> uh, because he had a really interesting life and it's actually quite sad. But anyway, um, question number one. This first novel of Oscars was reviled by contemporary reviewers who called it unclean, poisonous, and heavy with the mephitic odors of moral and spiritual putrefaction. Modern critics, however, have said it is one of the best novels ever written in English, with one author calling it an arresting and slightly camp exercise in late Victorian Gothic. What is this novel which has been copied, parodied, and made into plays, musicals, and movies since 1910? Uh, I'm going to name the only other work that I feel confident in the okay. title of besides the importance of being earnest, and that's The Picture of Dorian Gray. It is The Picture of Dorian Gray. So, uh, Picture of Dorian Gray. Uh, Dorian Gray is the subject of a full-length portrait in oil by Basil Hallward, an artist impressed and infatuated by Dorian's beauty. Through Basil, Basil, uh, Dorian meets Lord Henry Wotton and is soon enthralled by the aristocrat's hedonistic worldview that beauty and sensual fulfillment are the only things worth pursuing in life. Newly understanding that his beauty will fade, Dorian expresses the desire to sell his soul to ensure that the picture rather than he will age and fade. The wish is granted and Dorian pursues a libertine life of varied amoral experiences while staying young and beautiful, all the while his portrait ages and records every sin. When you say sensual something <laughs> on the back of my neck stands up you don't like sensual you don't like it the way i say sensual <laughs> i do not okay. something happens right. <laughs> something bad you don't like it it's gross well um i don't think i have to say sensual again during this quiz so you're safe okay <clears throat> Question number two. This American artist and friend of Oscars was active during the Gilded Age and spent most of his time in the UK. His most famous painting from 1871 is officially titled Arrangement in Gray and Black Number One, but you may know it as something more maternal. Who is this artist? Uh, James Whistler. Yes, James McNeil Whistler. And of course, the painting is his mama, Whistler's yep, mother. Whistler's mother. Yep. Um, so the story of Whistler's mother is a model apparently failed to appear one day, according to a letter. Um, so Whistler turned to his mother and suggested that he do her portrait. Um, he had her stand at first, but in his typically slow and experimental way, that proved to be too tiring. So the seated pose was adopted. Um, it took dozens of sittings to complete because he was definitely very like meticulous. Mm-hmm. Uh, it became very popular and Whistler did his part in promoting the picture and popularizing the image. So it became popular partially because Whistler was like promoting it. Um, he frequently exhibited it, authorized the early reproductions that made their way into thousands of homes. Um, it is now housed at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, and it is said that a lot of Wilde's witticisms were first said by Whistler. <laughs> so they hung out. They were like two dandies about town. Um, and uh, at one point, Oscar Wilde said something like, oh, that was so funny, Whistler. Like, I wish I had said it. And I guess uh, Whistler said, oh, you will. Oscar you will like you're gonna say it and it's gonna be attributed to you because people know you as a writer so question number three speaking of wild quotes complete this now common line frequently and erroneously attributed to Oscar Wilde the love that dare not blank 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 the love that dare not keeps on just keeps living. <laughs> keeps on trucking. Um, no, um, 
it is this is usually interpreted as a euphemism for homosexuality. Okay. Uh, it's called the love that dare not speak its name. Ah, okay. Okay. So um, this was actually the last line of a poem by Wilde's lover, Lord Alfred Douglas, which was entitled Two Loves, written in September 1892 and published in the Oxford magazine The Chameleon in December 1894. Um, it was mentioned at Oscar Wilde's Gross and Decency Trial. Um, and uh, Wilde, while it is normally interpreted as a euphemism for homosexuality, Wilde denied that it was. Mm-hmm. He, he saw it as more like a Greek platonic thing, um, that they may have been just because he was trying to defend himself in his trial. Right. So there's that. Uh, question number four, this Irish playwright has regularly been rated among British dramatists as second only to Shakespeare and has had extensive influence on generations of English language playwrights. His major works include man and Superman, Pygmalion and St. Joan, and is honored with a theater festival every summer in Niagara and the Lake. Who is this giant of Western theater? Uh, George Bernard Shaw. George Bernard Shaw. Um, he actually preferred to be called Bernard Shaw. Um, he lived to be 94 and he wrote 62 plays, which is crazy. Uh, the Shaw Festival in Niagara Lake, Ontario, Canada is the second largest repertory theater company in North America. It produces plays by or written during the lifetime of Shaw, as well as some contemporary works. Um, also, the Gingold Theater Group, founded in 2006, presents works by Shaw and others in New York City that feature the humanitarian ideals that his work promoted. It became the first theater group to present all of Shaw's stage work through its monthly concert series called Project Shaw. Shaw Festival is great. I used to go every summer. My parents would take me there as my for my birthday, which just shows that I was a very cool teen. Um, but yeah, it's it's a and they have great there's three theaters in Niagara on the Lake and they put on great shows. So Question number five. Speaking of Ernest, this British actor starred as Algernon in the 2002 movie adaptation of The Importance of Being Ernest and was a huge hit in the U.S. in the late 90s, early 2000s, with roles in My Best Friend's Wedding, An Ideal Husband, and The Next Best Thing. Who is this handsome actor, writer, and singer? Hmm. Is it Rupert Everett? It is Rupert Everett. Do you know how old Rupert Everett is? He is 60. He's 60, Julia. He's still, can I tell you though? He's still, still get it. super gorgeous. Oh my God, he still get it. Uh, as a matter of fact, Rupert Everett has always had an affinity for Oscar Wilde, telling the media that he's had a fascination with the playwright since he was a child. Um, he actually wrote and directed a film based on the final years of Wilde's life, which was entitled The Happy Prince, which was released in 2018. Um, I always suspected that him coming out as gay damaged his career, but apparently like... After, like, the the Rupert Everett, like, craziness in the early 2000s where, like, he was in that music video with Madonna and, like, got to be, like, close with her and all this yeah. stuff. Do you remember that? Um, apparently, he's still, like, working pretty regularly. Um, he's mostly working in the UK, like, theater circles. He does a lot of theater and he does some TV and, like, you know, miniseries stuff. But he's fine. Like, he's doing okay. Um, but I cannot believe he's 60. I am made of dust. Like, do you remember when? I mean, he must have been like then. He was. He must have been in, in his, his late thirties, in early forties. Yeah. But you know, you never, you don't, you think everybody's like twenty yeah. in movies. But anyway, great actor. Okay, question number six. This Irish author and distant relation of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a friend of Oscar's and actually married his childhood sweetheart. During his lifetime, he was better known as the personal assistant of actor Sir Henry Irving and business manager of the Lyceum Theatre, but you know him for his influential horror novel of The Undead, which he began only weeks after Oscar Wilde's conviction of gross indecency and was influenced by the novel Carmilla by Sheridan Lafanu. Who is this bloody writer? 
Bram Stoker. It is Bram Stoker. Uh, Bram Stoker was a deeply private man, but his almost sexless marriage, intense adoration of Walt Whitman, Henry Irving, and Hall Caine, and shared interests with Oscar Wilde, as well as the homoerotic aspects of Dracula, have led to scholarly speculation that he was a repressed homosexual who used his fiction as an outlet for his sexual frustrations. Huh. In 1912, he demanded imprisonment of all homosexual authors in Britain. It has been suggested that this was due to self-loathing and to disguise his own vulnerability. The original 541-page typescript of Dracula was believed to have been lost until it was found in a barn in northwestern Pennsylvania in the early 1980s. It consisted of typed sheets with as many revisions and handwritten on the title page was the words, THE UNDEAD, in all caps. Do we know how it got there? Uh, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, I didn't see. But um, the author's name obviously was shown at the bottom as Bram Stoker. And author Robert Latham remarked, the most famous horror novel ever published, its title changed at the last minute. Uh. (laughs) Um, The typescript was ultimately purchased by Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen. But they just found it. So wild. Okay. Question number seven. This wild play, which starred Sarah Bernhardt and was the toast of Paris and London, is about the titular stepdaughter of Herod Antipas, who, to her stepfather's dismay but mother's delight, requests the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter as a reward for dancing the dance of the seven veils. Who is this biblical woman who is not related to the cured Italian meat product? I don't get that reference at all. I'm just going to say Candide. Okay. Um, It's Salome. Like salami. Uh, <laughs> what? I tried to give you a hint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, okay, Salome. Rehearsals of the play starring Sarah Bernhardt began, but the play was refused a license by the Lord Chamberlain since it depicted biblical characters. <laughs> Salome was published jointly in Paris and London in 1893, but was not performed until 1896 in Paris during Wilde's later incarceration. Question number eight. True or false? Oscar Wilde lived openly as a gay man and neither married nor had children. I feel like he got married. I'm going to say. I'm going to say false. He did not live as an openly gay man and did not get married or have kids. You are correct. (laughs) Um, He was married to Constance Lloyd, who gave him two sons, Cyril and Vivian. Um, Vivian is spelled V-Y-V-Y-A-N, which apparently is a Welsh name, Vivian. Um, however, it is kind of a trick question because he definitely had open relationships with young men during and after his marriage, which obviously became, was his downfall. Um, according to Vivian Holland's account in his autobiography, which is called Son of Oscar Wilde, Oscar was a devoted and loving father to his two sons and their childhood was a relatively happy one. Although after 1895, when Wilde was convicted of the charges of gross indecency and imprisoned, Constant changed her surname and those of her sons to Holland. And then she forced Wilde to give up his parental rights. And um, Vivian, neither Vivian or Cyril ever saw their their father again. Oh, wow. So. um, Question number nine. Oscar was part of this late 19th century artistic and literary movement centered in Western Europe, which followed an aesthetic ideology of excess and artificiality. The movement was characterized by self-disgust, general skepticism, delight in perversion, employment of crude humor, belief in superiority of human creativity over logic in the natural world. Today, though, you might use this word to describe a particularly rich piece of chocolate cake. What is this movement? Hmm. Um, nah. I don't have the right answer. I'll just say hedonism. Oh, 
Um, you are very close. It's called the decadent movement. Ah. So the term decadent basically means decline. Um, then it was adopted as meaning moral decline specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, why do we use it for food now, however? Uh, probably because, you know, this food is so exceptional, so splendid that the person indulging in it feels that the taste is too good to be morally sound, which is like, all right. <laughs> anyway. And finally, starring Jim Varney as the titular Ernest, within one, how many Ernest movies were made altogether? I'm going to say 11. Oh, you're so close. It was nine. <laughs> <laughs> so between 1987 and 1998, they were Ernest Goes to Camp, Ernest Saves Christmas, Ernest Goes to Jail, Ernest Scared Stupid. Ernest Rides Again, Ernest Goes to School, Slam Dunk Ernest, Ernest Goes to Africa, and Ernest in the Army. Slam Dunk Ernest. I know. The first five were feature films, although they were B-movies, while the last four were direct-to-video. There were three more that were scrapped. Okay. Which is crazy. Uh, The character's full name was Ernest P. Worrell, and he was portrayed in a bunch of commercials, a TV show, which was called Hey Vern, It's Ernest, as well as the aforementioned movies. Um, And Jim Varney was the voice of Slinky in Toy Story 1 and 2 before he died in 2000 of lung cancer. So that, R.I.P. Jim Varney, (laughs) who apparently also, this is interesting, Jim Varney apparently had a photographic memory. So he would do... Like, he started out in, like, local television just doing commercials for local businesses. And he would do, like, 25 commercials in a day because he would just read the script once and then insert the different, like, companies and products in where they needed to be. So he would just, like, run through a ton of, of takes, like, perfectly because he remembered his lines no matter what. So he was really, like, that's kind of why he was so ubiquitous because... Not only was the character like people loved it and they like really caught onto it, but he was like he worked like a devil. Like he just was super professional and just like got shit done. So R.I.P. Jim Varney <laughs> and the Ernest character. <laughs> um, so that was Ernest and Ernest. Wonderful. That Thank was you. Great. Thanks. So uh, yeah, uh, please you know rate, review, and subscribe. Tell you a know? friend. Tell a friend. What else are you doing? <laughs> Listen to podcasts and cleaning your house and looking out a window, just like me. Like I'm doing that. So um, uh, thanks so much for listening, you guys. <laughs> we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. It's five o'clock somewhere. Ernest Milling. <laughs> This is going to take fucking forever. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to be able to do this. Okay. Get it together, LT. Here we go. Uh, Yellow leather. All right. Er (laughs) Ernest.